Some fashion world commentators posit that the concept of vintage fashion emerged in New York, Greenwich Village, more specifically, in the mid-1950s. The concept actually goes back quite a bit further in history, arguably originating with rag pickers, sometimes called rag and bone men who, in the age before modern sanitation systems and practices, like regular garbage collection schedules, would hustle around cities with carts and bags, collecting spare bits of whatever they could find, and then exchanging those bits, usually by weight, for a set fee at a set location for such scrap deposits. These scraps were then either converted into other materials, cardboard, for instance, or broken glass melted down to be incorporated into new glass, or in some cases were repaired, as was the case with machinery, or articles of clothing that were not quite rags yet, and could thus be stitched back into something functional and maybe resellable. Older, used articles of clothing have long been available if you knew where to look then, but for much of history, and still today, in some cities where rag pickers still operate, it hasn't generally been considered a positive thing to get your clothing from these sorts of vendors. They were clothiers of last resort, essentially. The evolution of these used, repaired, older-style garments into something borderline desirable, at least by folks in some subcultures, arguably began during World War I, during which textiles and buttons and other such materials were in short supply around the globe, and in many countries it became a visual statement of support for the war effort, a patriotic gesture to wear older garments inherited from one's own family members, or to purchase older garments that had obvious stitches and patches that made it clear the wearer of said garment was sacrificing their vanity for the greater social good. This visual indication of wearing older, repaired clothing was resurgent during World War II for mostly the same reasons, and in the post-war 20th century, the trend evolved into a sort of countercultural statement, especially in Europe and around the UK, as being anti-consumerist, anti-establishment, and generally anti-what-my-parents-generation thinks I should be wearing, became increasingly cool and became a bit of a trend. This shift in perception towards stitches and patches also aligned with the hippie movement, which itself was quite anti-consumption, as well as the broader bohemian lifestyle choices that were emerging in somewhat different shapes around the world, but which generally meant basically behaving in culturally subversive ways and living a lifestyle that was against the grain of contemporary standards and in some cases actively flaunting that distinction. The popularity of both the hippie and bohemian lifestyles, especially amongst young people, in part because of the usual desire to shock their parents and other authority figures, and in part because of how many celebrities and other influential people adopted it around this time, 
All of that during this period led to an appropriation of the aesthetic by wealthier, very consumption-oriented people over the course of the next few decades. And it's around this time, post-1960s, that the term vintage starts to show up in advertisements published by high-end clothing establishments, referring to the use of older cuts and materials, anachronistic stylistic choices, and in some cases overt but unnecessary stitches and patches that alluded to the concept of clothing that was repaired but which was often used on brand new clothing, or very well-preserved older clothing that didn't need those types of repairs. And in both cases, such pieces typically cost a small fortune. Just one more example of the older and wealthier trying to look like the young. In the 1980s, 90s, and into the early 21st century, the vintage concept evolved once again, but in two different directions. Some vintage enthusiasms oriented around the concept of curating fashion, essentially, from the selection of older clothes such enthusiasts could locate and purchase at second-hand stores, which until this point were generally considered to be just slightly better than the rag-picker-supplied stores of last resort from back in the day, and they combined these fashion elements in such an interesting and creative way that they began to inform the mainstream fashion world while also showing up in some very influential pop-cultural artifacts, like Sex in the City, and in aspects of the punk and punk rock aesthetic. Parallel to that, the mainstream fashion world began to incorporate vintage-looking, newly-made clothing and accessories into their work, replicating the aesthetic of these usually not-so-wealthy, but quite stylish people, who were taking a sort of bohemian, second-hand store grazing, anti-consumerist approach to things, and bringing it into the mainstream, making it more expensive, and then eventually, heading into the 2010s, incorporating that same concept and look into the world of fast fashion, which itself is typically trying to mimic more expensive clothes, and those more expensive clothes are often trying to mimic people who are not wealthy and thrifting, and otherwise trying to make up for the fact that they don't have tons of money to spend on clothing. And fast fashion, by some estimations, is the exact polar opposite philosophical and practical fashion facet when compared to the approaches and ideologies of those who started and originally popularized the modern version of this trend. What I'd like to talk about today is fashion and reused, recycled, and refurbished clothing in particular, and why the larger fashion industry seems to be pivoting toward these sorts of concepts once more. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Business of Fashion, and it's entitled Trove, the platform behind Lululemon and Levi's resale, raises $77.5 million. This piece focuses on a new investment round in a company called Trove, a maker of platforms for other companies, primarily fashion companies at the moment, which was founded by a former Walmart e-commerce executive, but which snagged an early investment by the outdoorsy clothing company Patagonia 
back in 2014, and which recently raised a Series D round of $77.5 million, which brings them up to a total of $122.5 million raised so far, giving them a valuation of something like $200-$300 million. A lot of the specifics of this company and its finances are being kept under wraps, and that would seem to be at least partially the case, because the space in which they operate is becoming more crowded by the day. Trove itself sold more than 1 million items on their various platforms in 2020 alone, which is triple what they sold in 2019. And the space in which they operate and specialize is helping fashion companies create reselling platforms. That's what Patagonia wanted to do, and it's why they invested in this company so many years ago. In Patagonia's case, they ended up with a flurry of experiments as a result of this partnership all oriented around helping consumers consume less. That was actually a big part of their pitch when they started working with Trove. We don't want you to buy new Patagonia gear if you can buy used Patagonia gear. And they were able to make that kind of announcement because they're set up as a B corporation, which is a special type of corporation that basically means they can focus on metrics other than making money, and the people running the company are less likely to be sued by their shareholders for mismanagement if they choose to make less money when doing so will allow them to pollute less, for instance. And such corporations generally opt for the B Corps designation because they're keen to engage in some kind of environment-oriented activism alongside and often intertwined with their business activities. So they launched a platform called WarnWare in 2017, which is a site that offers up used Patagonia gear and clothing that is generally acquired from customers who have used but still good condition products that they're keen to trade in to the company from which they bought them in exchange for store credit. A few years later, in 2019, Patagonia launched another program called Recrafted, through which they create and sell clothing and other goods that are made from pieces of their products that were not in good enough condition to be resold as is, but which were made of raw materials that could be deconstructed and then made into something else, once combined with materials from other not good enough condition returned items. On the back of the success that Patagonia saw with these programs, in the sense that people loved the idea, the brand benefited from the perception that the company's products are so long-lasting and resilient that they can go through several owners before they're no longer usable, and in the sense that they were able to profit from products that otherwise would have just been thrown away. In the wake of that, Trove which again set up these programs and their associated websites and systems, including the repairing of reparable products for Patagonia, was able to achieve similar outcomes for eight other brands, and they plan to use the money from this new investment round to start working with some of the 50 other potential brands that they've been in talks with, including, reportedly, some that are in the luxury, high-end fashion world, and some that are located entirely outside the United States. Now, this space is not only ballooning for Trove. The second-hand goods market worldwide is expected to reach about $77 billion by 2025, which is about double what it is today. 
Much of this growth has less to do with traditional clothing brands like Patagonia or other companies that are dipping their toes into this space, like Nike and New Balance and Adidas and Levi's and Lululemon, and more to do with intermediary services that have taken off in a big way, especially with younger people in recent years. Poshmark, ThreadUp, and The Real Real, for instance, offer more targeted, appealing, and focused consignment store-like shopping for clothes and furniture and other such things, but with a hint of the curation that often dramatically increases the price of higher-end vintage wear, but without that massive price tag inflation. Thus, these platforms which are basically websites and apps that serve as a better Craigslist or Facebook marketplace for certain audiences and certain types of resold consumer goods, have created a surge in demand for these goods, especially amongst young people who, in surveys, generally report liking the selection of what's available on these sites better than what's available in most stores, and liking the lower prices compared to what they can expect when buying new clothing and new furniture, and that in turn has led to a surge in custom for these three companies, which are expected in aggregate to do about $1 billion worth of sales in 2021 alone, which is up about 20% from 2019. To be clear, though, this is not a single, unified, monolithic industry, or even sub-industry. And though a lot of the terminology is used interchangeably, these companies and platforms are taking somewhat, or in some cases wildly, different approaches to tackling the same issues, with results that vary quite a bit in terms of economic outcomes, but also in terms of ecological sustainability-oriented outcomes. In general, the term vintage, when used in this context, refers to clothing that is visibly from another era with colors or textures or decorative bits or cuts that stand out because they're associated with the 1980s or the 1880s or whatever else, some period that is not now. The term second-hand refers to clothing that has had a previous owner or more than one previous owner. Refurbished clothing refers to clothes that are second-hand but which then typically have been processed in some non-destructive way. At the most basic level, this might mean just cleaning the shirt or dress or shoes so that they're not covered in someone else's hair or sweat stains, but it could also mean doing some stitching, applying some patches, or something else along those lines, keeping the garment the same, but getting it back to something like it was when it was new, despite it having been previously owned and sold accordingly. Recycled or upcycled clothing is generally changed in some substantial way. So when Patagonia has someone return a shirt that's too full of holes to be worth trying to repair it and sell it as refurbished, it can instead cut up the fabric and incorporate that fabric into a new bag or jacket, which is a new product that is made from previously owned materials. In some cases, the breakdown of the older garment goes even further than that, with the textile actually pulled apart into individual threads so that it can be rewoven into a new type of fabric or a new shape or re-dyed a new color or maybe some sneakers 
some trainers if you're in a commonwealth country, might be in bad shape when they're turned in and thus cannot be repaired for resale, but you could maybe grind them up and use the plastic and rubber derived from those old, seemingly useless shoes and use them in the soles of new shoes, an old product converted into raw materials, which are then incorporated into a new product. Now, if you ask sustainability experts which of these options is most ideal, you'll get a variety of answers, and that's largely because all of them can be done in different ways, with different intended outcomes in terms of sustainability, and money made or lost, and the contexts and variables in which these different options are being applied matters a great deal. It's possible to recycle a shoe and produce more pollution than you would have had you simply sent that old shoe to a landfill and made a new shoe from scratch. But it's also possible to recycle a shoe in a way that dramatically reduces emissions and cuts back on the quantity of materials that would typically have to be produced to make that shoe. Most experts will then generally go on to tell you that the ideal is actually something that's not available quite yet, at least not in its fully fleshed out form, but which does seem to be on the radar, if not necessarily in the five-year planning documents, of most fashion companies that have been questioned about it recently. And that more ideal option is a concept called circular fashion. Circular fashion can and will mean many different things in its specifics, but fundamentally it means making clothes and accessories and other such things in such a way that they're meant to be reused, resold, upcycled, recycled, and generally just continuously reintegrated back into the fashion business ecosystem with the ultimate goal of consuming fewer resources at all steps along the way while still continuing to serve the needs and wants of their customer base. So rather than attempting to make clothing the way that we do today, with a variety of levels of quality and material types and pollution outputs, companies would instead be more likely to design clothing from the look and feel to the manufacturing processes to the textiles and dyes that they utilize and the way that they're marketed and delivered to customers with that cyclicality in mind. These garments would be made to be reused and recycled and refurbished, and that purpose would then inform their design, rather than the other way around. Many clothing companies are already experimenting with this concept, generally on quite small levels, and part of the current finitude of cyclical fashion options today is down to this being a somewhat new thing at least in terms of it being a desired attribute by their intended customer base, and in terms of it just recently having become more economically viable, but also because for it to really work, it likely won't be enough for any one or even a dozen dedicated brands to decide to do this. They'll need the entire fashion industry ecosystem to move in this direction. And making that kind of transition and doing it in a way that's real rather than superficial and greenwashy will likely take some time, years at least, and they've been lurching in that direction in some ways for several years already. So there is movement, but this is a ponderous process and will almost certainly continue to be so. And this is the case because fashion brands can't typically do everything in-house. They might come up with designs, 
but then they farm out the manufacturing of their garments to a company halfway around the world, which itself farms out the development, the harvesting, and refining of the raw materials into something that they can use. And then they have someone else go do their marketing and have someone else like Trove do additional things like running their online platforms and their garment repair centers. So it's not enough for just brands to make this transition. They need the whole manufacturing, marketing, and distribution base of a sprawling global industry to change. And until everybody's moving in roughly the same direction, the costs associated with any single component of going circular will be pretty immense. Some companies like Patagonia can afford to do this because it lines up with their unusual corporate structure and their corporate ideology. But most companies won't be able to justify it to their boards of directors until the money value of making this shift is abundantly clear. Fortunately, things are moving in that direction, and the second-hand clothing sector is considered to be one of, if not the, fastest-growing facets of the larger fashion industry worldwide. So while this is still a relatively niche thing, on the scale of that larger macro-fashion industry, it's making enough waves and attracting enough money to have caught the attention of even the most ardent non-activist CEOs and board members. They might not all move at the same speed or with the same enthusiasm, but it's not something that they can easily brush off and put off and ignore anymore. This is a similar shift to what we're seeing throughout the global economy. Lots of relatively small moves by companies and customers that are adding up to something big enough that the ingredients for circular economies in the worlds of automobiles and homes and even products like shampoo and other consumables are beginning to take shape, helping to launch initial trial-run products and building out the foundation for whatever comes next. The specifics of each circular system will be different, but the intended outcome behind each one is essentially the same. In the meantime, we will likely continue to see mostly greenwashing efforts on this front. Companies claiming to be further along this evolutionary curve than they actually are, alongside clever tools for filling in today's gaps, like those aforementioned resale-enabling platforms, as the true shape of that next step bundle of infrastructural components are imagined and planned and eventually built and implemented. Theoretically, at least, this should all add up eventually to an economy that consists of more long-lasting products that are intended to live multiple lives in multiple hands before becoming raw materials for some new product alongside other products that degrade in a more sustainable fashion. These end-of-life outcomes planned for and optimized for from the beginning. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Love People, Use Things, Because the Opposite Never Works by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. I'm a little bit biased with this book. It's written by a couple of guys who are good friends of mine. They go by the moniker The Minimalists, and they do very good work. I've heard 
most of the stories and information in this book before, but in my opinion, it's the best version of their respective stories that I've heard, and it's the most refined explanation that I've seen of the philosophy, the minimalist philosophy that they espouse. So there's some good narrative nonfiction in here, but there's also some very good perspectives and ideas that you might find useful if you've been thinking about focusing your life a little bit more and are keen to get some insight on that from people who have done it and who have been speaking and writing about it for a good long time now. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Love People, Use Things by Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can subscribe to receive a daily email from me in which I curate and summarize the news at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.